Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Thank you for joining me this morning. I am welcoming back Jeff Schumacher, who is the Senior Director of Content at the Mob Museum here in Las Vegas. As some of you might know, Jeff had been a journalist for 25 years, during which he was a columnist for the Review Journal. Jeff has also authored great Las Vegas books, including a definitive bio on Howard Hughes. Jeff, welcome back, and how are things going at the Mob Museum? Oh, man, you know, this first uh, quarter of 2019 has been incredibly busy. Uh, we've we had uh, I mean, just record numbers of people coming in, so it's been uh, it's been good. Yeah, I think part of the thing too, very simply, is that that building is just so beautiful, isn't it? I think so. You know, uh, it's our it's our greatest artifact, right? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's just a uh, you know for Las Vegas, it's a, it's a very unusual historic building. And, you know, we keep it in good shape, and so people, I think, really like the contrast with the rest of the city in a lot of ways. And I'd like to talk more about the museum in in a few moments, but one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your fascinating book that you authored titled Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. It was first published, I believe, in 2008? That's correct. That's correct. That was... uh, um, you know that was the first edition, and uh, now I'm uh, I've I'm com- just completed a uh, a revised and expanded edition. There must be some pretty revealing things uh, to add to the original. Well, I think so. You know, it's not like I have uh, any new smoking guns that are going to you know answer everybody's questions about Howard Hughes. On the other yeah. hand. What I've what I've done is I've made it a more complete biography. So. The first edition really focused on uh, Howard Hughes and his years in Las Vegas. And that's still the, the primary focus of the book. But what I was hearing from people in 2008, 2009, when the book came out, was we love this book, but it, you know it's not like we're going to read four different biographies of Howard Hughes to get the whole story. We'd like to read one. <laughs> yeah. So, what I've done is I have added five chapters, um, and, and some of there's new new tidbits on Las Vegas in all of them, but they really really round out the story of Howard Hughes and who he was and the business activities he was engaged in, uh, the people he knew, the stories you know the people tell about him. And uh, it just is a, I think it's more of a one-stop shop of a book now. And for all of the things that Howard Hughes accomplished in Southern Nevada, he really didn't live here all that long, did he? Not really. He, uh, he was here for four years in the 1960s. Um, he also was here for about a year in the early 1950s. Um, so, you know, all, all told, five years of his 70-year life. So not, not a long time, but he, he had investments here, you know, in the in the 50s and then again in the 60s and and until his death uh you know he was very involved in the hotel business and uh also you know bought a ton of real estate around town and so forth so his impact is uh, exceeds the number of years that he lived here Jeff Schumacher joins me from the Mob Museum I'm wondering when he first came here then in the 50s was he did he like to gamble at all you know uh, from from the best information that I have uh, Hughes was never a big gambler he did gamble I mean he would put money down on a table and so forth but 
but uh, he wasn't a big gambler. He he really liked the shows. He liked you know eating out in the in the restaurants and and going to the shows. Um, but I think mostly for Las Vegas, it was an escape from from the the really the attention that was so uh, intensely focused on him in Los Angeles, uh, which is where he spent the bulk of his life. And so, you know, having been having been involved with the movie business there, you know, the the, the old fashioned version of the paparazzi were always right around the corner. And, and in Las Vegas, he could be more a more private person. So that explains, you know, he was with all those Hollywood types and why why he would come to the desert. The land that he purchased that would eventually be called Summerlin, he got that for dirt cheap, didn't he? Indeed. Um, in the early 1950s, uh, Hughes uh, saw an opportunity to acquire this land. He did it in a land trade. So he, he bought a bunch of land up in northern Nevada. And then uh, he traded that to the federal via the federal government for the land west of Las Vegas, and he compiled a 25,000 acre parcel in what at the time would have been, you know, the far reaches of the Las Vegas Valley. Um, and and his idea at the time was his, he never planned to build shopping centers and houses and you know ballparks and so forth. His his vision was that this was a place where he could move Hughes Aircraft Company. And he wanted to bring it here and, and have the wide open spaces to do testing and, and you know, uh, testing new aircraft and, and other, uh, other you know, uh, aviation uh, experiments. And it never did happen. Uh, you know, he got a lot of pushback from the engineers at Hughes Aircraft, who in the early 50s would, could not imagine moving the company to Las Vegas, where you know, it was, it was this dusty kind of remote town to them, yeah, right. and uh, they they pushed back very hard on on that. And ultimately, Hughes did not move the company here. And therefore, but he held on to the land, and uh, he, he never let it go. And so, once the city grew enough, after he died, his heirs recognized an opportunity to build Summerlin. Actually, thought about an airstrip out in the Summerlin area. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, he would have been uh, t- testing all kinds of you know rockets and airplanes and and satellites and all kinds of stuff out there if he had had his way. Jeff Schumacher joins me. I'm not sure if you ever saw the film The Aviator, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, for sure. Did they get it right, as far as you know? You know, uh, uh, most accounts, most uh, most critics look at the film, uh, or I should say, most Hughes historians look at the film and say, you know what, they, a lot of it is right, a lot of it is is spot on, um, and and actually, The Aviator was one of the inspirations for me to write the book because, you know, the the Aviator is great, but ultimately the story of the Aviator ends in 1947. And this was before, you know, the whole Las Vegas years of Howard Hughes. This was before his demise, really, uh, physically and mentally, and, but also before he had such a huge impact on Las Vegas. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to write the sequel to The Aviator. <laughs> yeah, right. And essentially in book form, that's what it is. I mean, uh, you know, it, it really deals with, you know, Hughes in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, what transpired in his life that led him to Las Vegas. Purely speculation, but uh, what do you think he would think of our AAA team being called the Aviators, really, in his honor? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, Hughes was <laughs> not a big sports fan. 
No. I don't think he was opposed to sports, but he, he certainly was not particularly well versed in in sports and and so he, he except for golf, which he you know, he was an avid golfer as a young man. But uh uh I, I think he'd he'd appreciate the the sort of neutral um you know, use of the word aviator as opposed to you know, uh, I think one of the mascots is what Spruce the Goose, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and Hughes was not a fan of the phrase Spruce Goose to describe his airplane. He he did not like that. He thought that was a a negative uh, reference to you know what he called the Hercules, which is the largest airplane ever ever flown. Wow, interesting. But it, it certainly, you know, I, I can't speak for Howard Hughes, obviously, but you know the. The, the success of Summerlin uh, as a community uh, yeah. is something he'd have to have admired of his heirs, that they, they pulled that off. One of your new chapters uh, I am hearing will deal with the Hughes-Glomar Explorer, which involved the CIA. That's right. Um, and the, the, uh, a Russian submarine, during the Cold War in the late 60s, a Russian submarine sunk to the bottom of the ocean in the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, again, this was during the Cold War, and the United States learned uh, that this had happened. It, it was no secret to the U.S. military. And the U.S. military said, you know what, we could gain all kinds of information about the Soviet Union and its activities if we could get a hold of that submarine. So they concocted a plan that would... Uh, uh, to go get the submarine. And they had to build this giant ship, and then they had to have some kind of a device to go down to the bottom of the ocean and pull it up. So what they did is they created a whole smokescreen, a whole um, facade for this project. And they, And the way they created this facade is they said that Howard Hughes would be doing deep-sea mining in the Pacific Ocean. And the, so the Glomar Explorer was this giant ship, and everybody assumed, uh, until it got leaked out later, everybody assumed that this huge, this huge ship was going out and was going to do deep sea mining. In fact, what it was doing is it was going out to retrieve the submarine. The submarine was, in fact, located, and it was, uh, they attached their devices to it and started pulling it up. Um, and part of the submarine broke off as they were pulling it up, but they were able to pull up a good chunk of it. And, uh, and this all happened uh, very secretly, um, and, and Hughes was basically the front for it. You know, Hughes Aviation, when it comes down to it, was created so that he could go faster than anyone else back in those days. I guess it was the 30s. Yeah. No, he, he got the bug, uh, the flying bug, like a lot of people did in America and around the world. Uh, in the early 30s, and when he was making a movie called Hell's Angels, and yeah. there was a lot of like World War One flying fighting scenes in that movie, and he was got the bug, and he wanted to be the the pilot who would fly the fly, the fastest and uh, across the country in the fastest shortest amount of time, and ultimately the pilot who would fly around the world in record time. So he created his aircraft company, and they started building and designing, designing and building airplanes. And in fact, in 1936, Hughes set the record for uh, airspeed. Then he set the record for traveling across the United States. Then in 1938, he set the record for flying around the world. And uh, 
you know, he was probably at that time one of the most famous people in the world. This is long before, you know, anything else happened uh, that we know about, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, owning Transworld Airlines, whether it was, uh, you know, getting involved in Las Vegas or any of his weird, uh, you know, weirdness as he got older and some of his afflictions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in 1938, there were there were uh, ticker tape parades in three cities around the United States, one in New York, and, uh, you know, the front page headlines in every newspaper in the world. Arguably the most famous person in the world, or at least this country at that time? I think for, yeah, I think so. Um, he was... Um, incredibly well recognized as uh, you know this people at that time. And it, it's I guess it's still true today, but especially in those days, people loved individual exploits like that. So you know uh, whether you were Amelia Earhart or uh, Charles Lindbergh or Howard Hughes or somebody did something else really amazing, um, you know you would get front page coverage for that. It was just people were were thrilled by the human potential. And and Hughes was uh, embodied that. He would end up with just a ton of stock in TWA, obviously. And what did he end up selling all that for? He ended up selling his stock in TWA in 1965 for 546 million dollars, <laughs> oh, half my. a billion dollars, which at the time was, you know, if you look at it now, <laughs> it's a huge. Yeah, it was a huge number then, and it's a huge number now. Uh, and the thing was that he, it all came to him all at once. And the IRS was very interested in getting a, its its fair share of that money. Right. So he was started looking for ways to to reinvest the money so that he wouldn't lose it uh, to taxes. And so he came to Las Vegas in 1966 on the premise that he was going to spend down that uh, his proceeds from the TWA uh, sale, and um, and that's what he did. He started buying land. He bought an airport. He bought. Uh, mining claims. He uh, he obviously then started buying casinos, and uh, before long, he was the biggest investor in Nevada, and uh, you know he was the most famous Le- Nevadan. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was in the in the news every single day. Author and senior director of content at the Mob Museum, Jeff Schumacher, is with me, and uh, it was very important that Hughes had trusted right hand men, right? I mean, and who were some of those people? So during the the bulk of his Las Vegas tenure, uh, Hughes was stayed on the ninth floor, the penthouse floor of the Desert Inn Hotel, and he was he had become very reclusive by this time. Uh, you know, he had had a very serious uh, airplane accident in 1946. And he became really addicted to painkillers after that. It affected his uh, behavior. He became kind of paranoid and uh, and also. Uh, you know, his, his appearance started to go. So he started being very reclusive. And what he, what he decided is he would just have a small group of men whom he could trust who would take care of his needs. And so there were six or seven guys who were, had access to the ninth floor of the DI. And, um, you know, sort of erroneously, these guys became known as the, his Mormon mafia. And yeah. the, the rationale for that was that uh, several of the men were, were, were Mormon um, and had been hired by uh, a Mormon who was the operations chief for Hughes in L.A. Right. But not all, not all of them were Mormon, and, uh, and uh, in fact, several of them were not. And, uh, but they took care of Hughes. They were very loyal to him. And uh, that was your first sort of 
level of trust. And then beyond that, in terms of his business operations in Nevada, he was hired a man named Robert Mayhew, Bob Mayhew. Right, right. And Bob Mayhew uh, had been an FBI agent. A C- he had been involved with CIA activities. He also was in private industry as sort of a private detective kind of a, a position. And he had been doing some odd jobs for Hughes, uh, different things, uh, different, you know, sort of, you know, cat and mouse kind of games. And uh, so Hughes liked Mayhew's work. And so he ended up hiring him to head up his Nevada operations. So Mayhew became the face of Howard Hughes in Nevada because Hughes wasn't going out. He wasn't meeting anybody. Um, so he needed somebody who could represent him. And so Bob Mayhew was that guy. And I've always heard stories about how his inner circle kind of, they were able to control Hughes and his movements because of his opioid addiction at that time. I think that's true. Um, I, I write a lot about that in the book and and delve into it. And my, and my position, uh, and there's nothing radical about it, uh, my position right. uh, is shared by a lot of people, and that is that uh, Hughes was manipulated by his aides and particularly by his executives, not so much Mayhew, but um, some of the other fellows who were vying for power within his organization. And uh, they would use the aides to, and the doctors who saw Hughes to regulate the intake of drugs, uh, to make him more um, acquiescent to their desires. Yeah. And ultimately, they really neglected his health because he got worse and worse uh, to the point where when he died in 1976, he weighed about 90 pounds and uh, he was, you know, in, in terrible physical shape. You mentioned Bob Mayhew and how really he was kind of the the conduit, the go-between when it came to Hughes and dealing with the gaming control board. Well, that's for sure. You know, even before Hughes arrived in town, the gaming control board had a regulation that said, if you want to obtain a casino license, you have to appear before the gaming control board in person. You have to, whether they were holding their hearings in Las Vegas or Carson City, you had to physically go and meet with them face to face. Well, Hughes had no intention of doing that, uh, but he was such a big investor in Nevada that, that the, the governor at the time, Paul Laxalt, made an exception and said, uh, Hughes does not have to appear in person before our board. Uh, we will allow Bob Mayhew to represent him. And so it was Mayhew who went up to the Game Control Board and, and made the case for them to obtain licenses for the casinos. And it was a first and I believe the last time the Nevada right. Gaming Control Board has ever allowed that. It's a fascinating story to me about how he, in Las Vegas, he bought Channel 8, as we know it here, KLAS, basically to uh, so that he could program the movies that he wanted to watch late at night because he was up all night. That was his primary motivation, for sure. Uh, Hughes was a night owl. He often uh, did not sleep uh, in the early morning hours. Uh, and... And he loved to watch movies. And so uh, he became frustrated with the selection of movies that Channel 8 was offering at night. Yeah. And he um, wanted to control that. He wanted, you know, nowadays, right, I mean, we get to decide what we want to watch based on whether you're watching Netflix or, you know, you can DVR shows and watch them whenever you want. Well, right. at that time, you were you were you you had to watch whatever they were putting on his channel. So... Uh, he started contacting Channel 8 before he owned it 
and trying to influence the movies that they showed. Uh, he wasn't satisfied with that, however, and so he ultimately bought uh, the station, and then he, got, he became in charge of the late-night movies, literally. And they would send him a list of what was available every single day, and he would mark the movies that he wanted to watch in order, and then that's the, those were the movies <laughs> they would watch. There's one very famous uh, situation in which Hughes, for whatever reason, actually fell asleep in the middle of a movie. Yeah. Showing of one of the movies, he had, he ended up calling the uh, you know the the director of the station, Mark Smith, and said, um, "Hey, I need you to start that movie over. I fell asleep." So they, <laughs> imagine you're a, somebody in Las Vegas, you're a, somebody who works a weird shift, and you're watching the movies, and suddenly uh, you, you see uh, some dark you know a, a dark few moments on the screen, and then suddenly the movie starts over. <laughs> and you know you could you have no explanation for what happened but in fact it was Howard Hughes sort of imposing as well another of your books that I have of yours that's uh here in my collection Sun Sin in Suburbia an essential history of modern Las Vegas when will that book and the book on Howard Hughes when will we see the revised editions so in the case of uh Sun Sin in Suburbia uh, the revised edition of that book came out in 2015. It was published by uh, University of Nevada Press. Uh, now, previously, the, both of my books were published by Stevens Press, and Stevens Press was uh, of the publishing arm of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Well, when Stevens Press went out of business in 2014, I obtained the rights to my books uh, back. And at that point, I... Uh, uh, sold the rights to the Sunset and Suburbia book to the University of Nevada Press, and I, I revised the book substantially to update the history of Las Vegas up to that time. So that book came out in 2015. So uh, in the meantime, I was able to do the same thing with Howard, the Howard Hughes book and sold that to the University of Nevada Press. And they, we expect that this new edition of the Hughes book will be out in the spring of 2020. Jeff Schumacher is the Senior Director of Content at the Mob Museum. The last time I was there, the Underground hadn't come out yet. Tell people a little bit about that and before I let you go. Sure. The Underground is, is really our, our newest and hottest exhibition. Uh, I describe it as an exhibition. Probably when people come, they'll say, oh, that looks like a bar and a, and a distillery. <laughs> right. Well, that's because it is. Uh, <laughs> We, uh, when you go down into the underground, which is the basement level of the Mob Museum, um, you're sort of taken back in time to the Prohibition era, and that's on purpose. We want you to feel like you are immersed in a different time period. So everything on the walls, you know, reflects that era. Uh, uh, the music reflects the era, and everything else that we're doing in there uh, is trying to evoke this really historic moment in American history during, during Prohibition. But it just so happens that we have replicated a speakeasy from that era, but we have an actual working bar in the speakeasy. And so you can order drinks, uh, that many of which are inspired by the drinks that were made available to people at that time. So the mixed drinks are inspired by the historic drinks of the Prohibition era. And then we have our distillery exhibit, and so you learn all about you know, uh, bootlegging and rum running and all of the things that were going on to provide booze to people back in the Prohibition. But we also have a working pot still. So we're making moonshine in the basement of the Mob Museum every day. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, so you can sample this moonshine, you can buy the moonshine, 
Uh, we have some flavored moonshines now, so we're branching out. We also make beer down there, so we got it all. It's such a great place to go to. It's it's really one of the gems of Southern Nevada. Uh, when you're in the downtown area, make sure you stop by. And there's always great scheduled programming there. Make sure that you go to the mobmuseum.org for more info or call 702-229-2734. Jeff, always great talking to you. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks again to Jeff Schumacher, and I look forward to his updated version of the Howard Hughes book. And thank you for tuning in this morning. I do hope to see you next Sunday morning at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.